three scriptures for tonight. The first is in Matthew 3:11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The next is in Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The last is in 1 Corinthians 12, chapter 4 through 11, or verses 4 through 11. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to the other the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to the other working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another various kinds of tongues, to, to the other the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who portions to each one individually as he wills. This is the word of the Lord. When I arrived on the campus of the Talbot School of Theology 30 years ago this fall, I didn't realize that I was... uh, walking into a kind of a theological war zone. Uh, One of our professors was a man named John MacArthur. He uh, was a professor of preaching at the seminary and also the pastor of Grace Community Church up in Van Nuys. Enormous, wonderful church. Uh, uh, He's a tremendous Bible expositor. And Pastor MacArthur had just published a book called Charismatic Chaos, uh, in which he argued that The charismatic gifts that Denise had just read about to us uh, had passed away, that they had ceased, and that believers ought to be uh, very wary of churches or Christians that practice them. Now, meanwhile, at uh, Fuller Seminary, which was over in Pasadena, uh, quite another thing was happening. They had invited a, uh, a man named John Wimber to come to the seminary and teach a course in the School of World Missions called MC 510, Signs and Wonders in Church Growth. And evidently what had happened is a lot of missionaries had come back from the field and had gone over convicted that these kind of gifts don't happen in the body today, and yet they'd seen all this stuff happen, like in the book of Acts, and they weren't sure what to do with it. So they said, come on in and teach this class. And John came in, he was a pastor of a church and he would teach a different, a very different perspective than uh, Dr. MacArthur. He was an evangelical. He believed that the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurred at conversion. But he believed that all the gifts were for today and central to the work of the church. 
So he would teach that. And then after an hour of teaching, he would take a break, and then he'd have a workshop. And uh, I, I remember in seminary having coffee breaks, hearing about the workshop, <laughs> and all sorts of, uh, well, signs and wonders stuff would happen in the workshop. And we would argue at our campus about what's happening at their campus and whether it should be happening and all that sort of thing. That's what you do in seminary during break. Um, the gifts, of course, in question are the ones that are in 1 Corinthians 12. Well, all of this came a little closer to home. The Lord has a, a, a sense of humor. Uh, Sandy became a Christian through Campus Crusade for Christ. She began to witness to her sister, Sharon. Sharon started moving towards God, started to understand the gospel, and then decided to go to the Anaheim Vineyard. Now, John Wimber had started this church called The Vineyard, and uh, kind of trying to take what he was doing in his little class at Fuller and work it out in a church. Well, Sharon had a powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit at the vineyard and decided to become a Christian. Well, as uh, not luck would have it, as God would have it, uh, she also met this uh, wonderful worship leader in the vineyard, a man named Joe Key, fell in love with him, and uh, they got married. And, and so uh, here I am at a seminary campus that is devoutly pursuing the idea that the charismatic gifts have ceased, and I've just married into a family where my brother-in-law is a worship pastor at a church in which these gifts are very active. And he would uh, go on tours with John Wimber. They would go to South Africa. They would go to Africa or England, and they'd come back, and they'd tell these incredible stories about signs and wonders. And uh, we had these long arguments at Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter and, you know, over what on earth is going on here. Now, why were Southern California seminaries arguing over uh, whether the Spirit was giving charismatic gifts today? They were responding to the rapid growth of the Pentecostal and charismatic movements that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And, of course, as we said, those movements put a lot of emphasis on the charismatic gifts as being a part of uh, the ministry and mission and life of the church. They, They often would would repeat Jesus' words in the long ending of Mark's gospel. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So, traditionally evangelicals, like the ones at Fuller and Talbot, looked at the Pentecostals and the Charismatics and said, we don't understand the baptism of the Spirit like they do, but what do we think about all this this gift stuff that's stirring up? And some of them, like John MacArthur, uh, answered as as cessationists. And what cessationism means is that the first century church and only the first century church experienced the miraculous gifts of the Spirit for the purpose of confirming the gospel in the absence of a completed New Testament. That's cessationism. Now, on the other side, John Wimber uh, represents a group that's called continuists, and they believe that the charismatic gifts are continuing to be given to the church today for the sake of building up the body of Christ and supporting mission. And what we've been doing is unpacking this whole idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Two weeks ago, we looked at the, the Pentecostal and charismatic understanding. Last week, we looked at the Reformed understanding. And tonight, we're going to look at Uh, the two different ways uh, Reformed people understand the charismatic gifts. Um, 
The best sermon that I've found, and I've read many, many books on this, but the best sermon I've found laying out the case for cessationism is by a pastor named Tom Pennington, and he preached the sermon at John MacArthur's Strange Fire Conference in October. And uh, Reverend MacArthur is uh, 74 now, uh, one of the finest Bible expositors of our day, and has just felt called throughout his ministry to point out what he sees are the errors in the charismatic movement. And, and so he, um, he called this conference, and he asked this pastor, Tom Pennington, to lay out the seven arguments for cessationism. And what I'm going to do tonight and is, is go through those seven arguments rather quickly and then share with you the responses from the continuous side. And uh, I'm not going to tell you which one's right and which one's wrong. Uh, my goal is just to inform you so that you can make a decision for yourself about what you think is true. Um, since I'm going to go quickly, uh, if you would like to dig deeper, I'd suggest... Uh, that, that you read his sermon, The Case for Cessationism. You can read it or listen to it on the Grace to You website. His name is Tom Pennington. That's The Case for Cessationism. Now, there is the best response I found is called Cessationism and Strange Fire by Andrew White on the Think Theology blog. And so what happens today in these conferences is while the poor guy is giving a sermon laying out the seven reasons why cessationism doesn't exist, some guy's in the audience blogging a response and posting it, and it's going viral. So that's the way theological discussion is happening today. Those would be the two uh, resources that I'd use. Now, before we go on, some of you are thinking, who cares? Fair question. Uh, Why does it matter? Uh, It matters because it's scriptural, and we need to care about what Scripture teaches on these gifts. It matters because it's controversial, as we talked about last week. A lot of people in the body of Christ uh, have been hurt by this whole subject. And I shared with you that I'd hurt people and been hurt. I know many of you have as well. And one of the ways that the body of Christ and we in our community can walk together as cessationists and continuists is if a cessationist understands the biblical reasons behind the other view and vice versa, perhaps we can love and respect each other a little bit better. And, and then lastly, I think this is an important discussion and not just a, 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 an arcane theological debate because what you believe about these gifts will shape your expectations of how you experience God. Now, I'm not saying one is right or one is wrong. I think both traditions can lead to a robust, spirit-filled life. But they are different. And what you believe about whether or not these gifts are for today will have something to do with what you expect God to do in your life and how you expect to know Him. So that's why I think it's important. Now, when Reverend Pennington begins his sermon, he makes a good point. He says, look, cessationists strongly believe that the Holy Spirit continues his work in the world today. He said, we believe God's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And then he asks, so what do we mean by cessationism? We mean that the Spirit no longer sovereignly gives individual believers the miraculous spiritual gifts that are listed in the Scripture and that were present in the first century church. It is neither the Spirit's plan nor His normal pattern 
to distribute miraculous spiritual gifts to Christians and churches today as he did in the times of the apostles. Those gifts ceased as normative with the apostles. So that's the argument. Uh, They're not here anymore. Now, seven arguments. We'll go through them quickly. The first one. The first argument for cessation is the unique role of miracles. It goes like this. There were only three primary periods in which God worked miracles through uniquely gifted men. The first was Moses and Joshua. The second period was during the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. The third period was during the ministry of Christ and the apostles. And when the last apostle died, the apostle John, that meant that that was the end of the period of miracles. Now, continuous respond that many supernatural events occur outside those three periods in the Bible. And they point out that we find miracles in the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, the book of Daniel, the book of Genesis, several others. And even more importantly, a continuous would say, the Bible never says that miracles are limited to these three periods and can occur today. Second argument for cessation is the end of the gift of apostleship. Ephesians 4.11, Christ gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Apostles were eyewitnesses of Christ. There were just 12 of those guys. The gift of apostleship has obviously ceased in that sense because there can't be any more eyewitnesses of Christ. So other gifts could cease as well. Not continuous will usually agree, not always, but usually agree that the gift of apostleship defined that way has ceased. They'll say, yeah, the other 12 apostles, they're not with us anymore. But then they'll say, but that doesn't prove that gifts like prophecy or tongues have ceased. We still have evangelists and pastors and teachers today. Why not the gift of prophecy? The third biblical argument for cessationism is the foundation of New Testament apostles and prophets. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The New Testament apostles laid the foundation for the church. Their work was completed in the first century. Uh, We should not expect any more apostles today. We should not expect any more prophets today. Therefore, we should not expect prophecy to occur in the church. Continuous point out that just because a ministry is foundational does not mean that it's ended. Jesus, for example, is the cornerstone, the ultimate foundation of the church, yet his ministry has not ceased. Continuous also point out that in Joel 2, the prophetic passage that Peter quotes in his description of Pentecost, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and on your sons and your daughters. They'll prophesy. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. So a continuous would say that that passage teaches that the gift of prophecy is actually to be a normal part of new covenant life. Now, the fourth biblical argument for cessationism is the nature of the miraculous gifts. It goes like this. The charismatic gifts of today are nothing like the ones in the Bible. This proves that they have ceased to exist. 
continuous affirm that Jesus and the apostles ministered with extraordinary power, but they argue that this does not follow that believers today can't minister with these gifts at all. Peter witnessed, and 3,000 came to Christ. We don't experience the same kind of power today, but we still witness in a similar way. We may not heal like the apostles healed, but we can still ask for the gift of healing today. A fifth argument for cessationism is the testimony of church history. We do not find charismatic gifts in church history. These gifts stop appearing after the death of the last apostle, and that proves that the Spirit is no longer giving them to the church today. Continuous reply that actually there is plenty of evidence of the charismatic gifts in church history. For example, the second century document, the Didache, gives instruction on handling prophetic words. In the City of God, written by Augustine in the 5th century, he writes of his own congregation, many miracles were wrought. The same God who wrought those, we read of still performing them. Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, uh, wrote this letter to a pastor who sought counsel about ministering to a sick man. And Martin Luther writes, If the physicians are at a loss... It must be an affliction that comes from the devil. And so you must counteract it by the power of Christ and the prayer of faith. Accordingly, you should proceed as follows. Graciously deign to free this man from all evil, and bring to naught the work that Satan has done in him. Then when you depart, lay your hands on the man again, and say, These signs shall follow them that believe. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So a continuous says, Actually, there is evidence that the charismatic gifts continued in church history. The sixth argument for cessationism is the sufficiency of Scripture. The canon is closed. Christians need no more revelation from God. All you need is the Bible. You do not need dreams. You do not need visions. You do not need prophetic words because God has given us everything we need in his holy word. Pennington urges his audience, we must reject all forms of continuing revelation, including subjective impressions from God. Don't ever talk about feeling something from God. Now, continuists agree that the Bible is infallible, objective revelation, that nothing should be added to it. But they also argue that The New Testament envisions a spirituality that includes the subjective inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, They often will return to Joel and say, Joel anticipates a way of relating to God in which dreams and visions and prophecy are a normal part. Or Romans 8, where Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit, crying out, Abba, Father, in our hearts, or praying through us in words we can't know. Or John 14 to 16, where Jesus promises to give us the helper, the Holy Spirit, who will share God's truth with us. Now, one of the things that continuous will often add at this point is, uh, well, how do you explain, uh, cessationist brother, what is happening on the mission field? Because in Muslim countries particularly, there are many Muslims who cannot hear the gospel preached because it's against the law, who are coming to Christ through dreams and visions. How do you explain that? And I remember uh, in seminary, uh, I was in a class uh, one afternoon, and the professor, a very godly man, brilliant man, he was doing his PhD at Cambridge, he was on staff at Dr. MacArthur's church, 
was teaching about the gifts ceased, and I had this lovely missionary. Um, I thought she was an older woman at the time. I realize now she's younger than I am now. But she had come back from the field, and, and uh, she kept saying, but I saw this in this African country, um, but I saw this. And uh, that conversation didn't end well. Um, the seventh and final argument for cessationism is the New Testament teaching on how charismatic gifts should function in the church. Paul lays out clear guidelines in 1 Corinthians 14, giving specific rules to follow when tongues and prophecy are being practiced. There's to be order and structure as well as interpreter. Most charismatic practice disregards these commands. The result is not a work of the spirit, but of the flesh. The continuous will agree that charismatic gifts need to be practiced wisely and in keeping with the guidelines of Scripture. They agree that there are abuses. They also point to many Christians who do practice charismatic gifts in keeping with Paul's guidelines. So, these are the seven major arguments for the belief that the charismatic gifts are no longer given to the church today and the seven responses from those who believe that they are. Now, Jonathan Edwards, uh, considered probably the brightest, most intelligent theologian in in America since the church has been in America, uh, looked at this biblical evidence, and here was his conclusion. So he looks at those seven arguments. Here's his conclusion. Since the canon of Scripture has been completed, and the Christian church fully founded and established, these extraordinary gifts have ceased. So one of the greatest minds the church has known uh, is a cessationist. Now, John Piper, uh, who's certainly one of the greatest uh, preachers in America today, preached a sermon series in 1990 to his church up in uh, Minnesota. And he ended with a sermon called, Our Signs and Wonders for Today. And he came into the pulpit and he held up two stacks of books. Uh, One stack represented the cessationist tradition. They argued that the gifts had ceased. The other stack represented the continuous tradition. They argued that the gifts were for today. And after reviewing all the arguments from both sides, Dr. Piper held up the cessationist books, the ones that said that the gifts were no longer for today. And here's what he said. He said, I find in this tradition, the cessationist tradition, virtually Every teacher I've loved and benefited from, I love these men. They are my kind of people, but I don't find their arguments compelling. So Jonathan Edwards is a cessationist, and John Piper is a continuist. So clearly, this is an issue on which great Christians can read Scripture differently. Now, what do we do with all this? Well, first, it seems to me that uh, humility is in order when we talk about these things. Uh, Every doctrine is not a first-order doctrine of the church. And we've talked about that the past few weeks. There are first-order doctrines of the church that are essential to believe for for salvation. We call them mere Christianity. They're reflected in the creeds. 
But there are other second-order doctrines that are not essential for salvation. And good Christians do disagree on them. And we should not stand as firmly and absolutely on second-order doctrines as we do on first-order doctrines. And, And I must say to you, with all due respect, that as I read the sermons from the Strange Fire Conference Uh, all week, uh, I was grieved because some of the speakers essentially said that if you disagree with them, you've been deceived by the devil. And some went so far as to say, is that the half a billion Christians who understand Scripture in in this way uh, have contributed nothing to the work of the gospel or the body of Christ? I do not believe we should take stands like that on second-order issues. There should be more humility. Now, as I was looking at responses to the Strange Fire Conference, and and there was quite a, a blog fire about it, and lots of things going back and forth, I was also grieved by many of the responses. Because... A lot of Christians would respond by saying, you know, if you believe that these gifts have ceased, you are quenching the Holy Spirit. You have grieved the Holy Spirit. And I thought, I wish you hadn't said that. I mean, do you really want to say that someone who studied the Scripture and concludes that these gifts aren't for today and tries their best to, to walk in the light of the Scriptures as they understand them, do you really want to say that they're grieving the Holy Spirit? Do you want to say that John Calvin grieved the Holy Spirit? I've heard John MacArthur preach. If I could preach half as Spirit-filled as that man preaches, I would be happy. I've been in his church. It's a Spirit-filled church. So let's be careful and let's act in humility, especially when we're talking about second order doctrines. Now, uh, what do you do with this? Well, I've asked you to think about it and at some point determine what you think is true. Well, let's suppose that you Uh, you've decided, you know, I think these gifts have ceased. This morning, uh, my friend John Wood, Pastor Cedar Springs, got sick Friday and called me and said, can you pinch hit? And I said, well, you may not want me to, given what I'm talking about. (laughs) And uh, he said, well, we're talking about the Spirit, and so I went anyway. So, um, And so afterwards, a guy comes up, and he says, I am a post-charismatic. Now, that's the first time I've heard that one. Um, he says, I'm a post-charismatic. He says, I've been in, he names the name of a movement for 25 years, and I spoke in tongues all the time for 25 years. I'm over it. I'm a cessationist. We had, we had a good conversation. Uh, <laughs> now, for those of you in our kind, a brother in our body told me Friday afternoon, yeah, I'm a cessationist. I'm, we have many, I'm sure. Uh, that, that, that's where you come down. It's a very reasonable position. Here's uh, my challenge to you. What is your relationship like with the Holy Spirit? John MacArthur, in the opening sermon at the Strange Fire Conference, describes the work of the Holy Spirit like this. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? 
He convicts. He regenerates. He justifies. He illuminates. He cleanses. He converts. He sanctifies. He adopts. He baptizes. He indwells. He endows. He empowers. He guides. He delivers. He produces fruit. He secures us. The Spirit's ministry, writes John Owen, the Puritan theologian, he's quoting him here, consists in his bringing the promise of Christ to remembrance, in his glorifying him in our hearts, in his shedding abroad the love of God in us, in his witnessing with us as to our spiritual state and condition, in his sealing us to the day of redemption, in his confirming our adoption. We can't let the wondrous work of the Holy Spirit lie dormant in the dark. We must acknowledge Him and commune with Him in gratitude. So, if your conclusion is, I don't believe these gifts are for today, what are you doing with everything you do believe about the Holy Spirit? What is your communion like with the Holy Spirit? Now, another lady comes up to me this morning. One thing about a large church is you get lots of feedback. <laughs> you get lots of people with lots of... She comes up and she says, um, uh, she said, I had fibro... I was raised a cessationist. I had fibromyalgia. I heard about a revival in Pigeon Forge in 2008. I forget the guy's name. I went to the revival. He laid hands on me. I went out like a lot. Light Electricity went through my body. I was down when I came up. It was all gone. I never had it again, and I've been healed ever since. Praise the Lord. I'm a continuist. <laughs> said, okay. Well, suppose that's where, where you land. What should you do? Well, I think for starters, and most importantly, remember everything Dr. MacArthur said about the ministry of the Spirit. See, really, whether you're a cessationist or a continuous, we agree on 98% of the role of the Spirit in our lives. Essentially what's happening if, if you decide you believe in the charismatic gifts for today, it's like you've got a toolbox and you guys are going to call me out here because if you know me at all, I can't even find my toolbox. So any, any kind of masculine attempt here is going to fall short. But if I had a toolbox, it would be like opening up the toolbox and realizing, oh, there's this little portion over here with some tools that I, I didn't know were there. Huh, I wonder what they could build. That's kind of where you are if if you get to this point. So, what do you do? Well, after you've heeded Dr. MacArthur's advice, let me suggest three principles to keep in mind when exploring charismatic gifts. First, love matters most. 1 Corinthians 13 was not written for weddings. <laughs> yeah. It has nothing to do with marriage. <laughs> there were these charismatics that were tearing the church up. And he writes a passage and says, look, it's about love. Put your tongue down for a moment and listen, it's about love. That's what that passage is all about. I'll preach it at your wedding if you want me to, but that's what it's about. <laughs> if I speak in tongues but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers but have not love, I am nothing. It's all about love. 
And here's the only real rule you need if you start to kind of explore some of these gifts in your small group or your prayer group or your personal life. Is it loving other people well? If it's not, stop. End of discussion. If it starts to feel manipulative or shaming or toxic or abusive or confusing, it's not from the Spirit. Love matters most. Second, the Spirit is sovereign. We talked about this last week. Paul gives that great list of the charismatic gifts, and he says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. As he wills. The Spirit is sovereign over the giving of the charismatic gifts. It's not like McDonald's. You can't order a number seven. You just can't. He decides what he'll give and when he will give it. Third principle, seek the gifts. Now, wait a minute, Doug. You just said that the Spirit was sovereign, that you can't control it, that you get whatever you get. So what do you mean, seek the gifts? 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So there is a mystery here. There is a tension here that on the one hand, the Spirit sovereignly gives gifts to whomever He will, whenever He will. On the other hand, we are to seek the gifts. Now, I, as you, as you know, have wound up on the continuous side. And so, for me, uh, what that verse means and has meant in my life lately is I have a prayer. And I'm praying that God would give me supernatural insight in conversations and in preaching that would help me love others better. So that's what it means for me to seek the gifts. I'm praying for supernatural insight in conversations and preaching that will help me love others better. Now, where we began with is where I want to end. Um, this is not just theoretical. It has to do with what you expect in your relationship with God. Essentially, what we're talking about when we have this discussion is how do I hear God's voice? How do I experience God's guidance? What is the nature of my relationship with Him? And those are questions worth wrestling with.